Oh, that, that's an interesting story right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, this is a, a, a movie chat about Spooky Sat by the Door. So this is our first time recording. So this is kind of a, I don't know, you call it a beta test, a pilot test or whatever, but let's see how it goes. So everyone just saw Spooky Sat by the Door and I guess we can just um, pick up where the conversation left off because it was already starting before we recorded. So uh that's that so yeah um the last thing people were talking about is who produced it right yeah it looks uh like it was produced by ivan dixon and sam greenley and uh it was written so the novel that it's based on was written by uh sam greenley i guess uh melvin clay helped with the uh, uh screenplay adaptation because it says it's written by uh those two I'm curious. <clears throat> I'm curious who the chat thinks was supposed to be the audience for this at the time. Watching it, I both it resonated with me both from the perspective of being black and understanding what's happening during that time period. But I could also see the way it was a sort of cautionary tale for white society to say, "Hey, if you don't do anything about you know all the different issues that are going on with respect to race relations, this is what could happen." If I'm... Oh, no, go, no, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, the way I see it, I see it in a way, like, it's supposed to be pandering to, you know, well, yes, the kind of, to white society is a bit of a, a cautionary tale, but at the same time, I also kind of see it in a, you know, what, what's the, what's the way I'm trying to articulate this? Like, it just tries to pander to maybe the liberationist crowd like as a depiction. Like, oh, this could be what will end up happening if you have enough decent organization. You know, kind of in a, in a way similarly to Sweet, uh, bad, uh, Sweet, Sweet Facts, Bad Act Song, which Huey Newton made the, the entire Panthers uh, watch that film as a form of an influence. I mean, I... I... I see that, but I think that's that could be very dangerous because you could end up actually catalyzing a real movement. And I, I, I don't know. I'm skeptical whether people who have the resources where we'll all put together a movie would would actually be that naive about the impact that you know putting these sorts of images, putting these sort of concepts out there in mass media, being so naive that they would think that this they either control it or that people weren't smart enough to connect the dots or try to emulate that. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not old enough to know what was going on during that time, but I think that, to my mind, that would be a dangerous game to play, to just try to make this into something that was, you know, revolutionary chic. Um, I mean, this is not revolutionary chic. This is kind of like right off the tail end of, you know, things like 67 um, is when Vietnam was really ramped up. You had the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army. Black Panther Party was had come and gone. Um, you had like John Huggins, a bunch of Carter. You had like a lot of like real revolutionary stuff happening. And you had like the Weather Underground doing bombings at buildings, like college campuses and stuff. Like, there was a lot of stuff really going on. So something like this at a time where there wasn't as much mass media would have felt like a, like a, a shot across the bow. 
like, look, this is already happening. This could go further. So where do you want, how far do you want to push this? Right. But I, I mean, I understand that there was a, there was a lot of things going on at the time. However, there also was a lot of imagery that really appealed to people like Black Panthers wearing berets and leather jackets. There wasn't a stylized element even to substantive movement politics. And I don't think that we can discount the fact that that is part of the appeal of putting together a movie like this. Um, one thing that I am aware of was that it was by United Artists. I don't fully understand how United, United Artists worked, but I knew it was some kind of experiment in and of itself where it was kind of a... So you're saying like the aesthetics would be appealing as opposed to like not being a direct reaction? Like, or just kind of, uh, this could be the end result of what's going on. Is that in... Um, no. Is that a response to me? Uh, I don't know if you guys can hear me. I'm confused. Yeah, we so. can. We can. Oh, hear you. okay. No, um, United Artists is not is the name of the studio. It's not about the aesthetics. I think United Artists had a certain mission statement where you can hear me. Oh no, I could hear you, but the way that you were talking, it didn't seem directly in response to what I was That's saying. Cool. So I, I don't know if you were uh, responding to someone else or responding to me. Yeah, I think he was responding to uh, I saw an info talking about like the aesthetics and that sort of thing. Okay, so does does it mean that he can't hear me or? Well, no, we can. I think we can all hear you now. I think you might not have heard uh, what I saw an info was saying uh, just a moment ago. Oh, oh, okay. Well, what I was saying is as far as um, I heard what I saw an info was saying, but I was adding the extra context of uh, United Artists because I think United Artists was all about allowing actors and creators to control their own um, interests and not being subject to the studio system. So I think with United Artists, um, there was a lot less oversight that would happen in the usual studio picture, which is why I think it was able to get uh, all the way to the theaters with that amount of radicalness. You know, it was a very weird, unique uh, system. It eventually got bought by by Metro Goldwyn Mayer in 1981, so it just became another studio. But before, yeah. but before then, it was uh, kind of like a re rebellion. It was actually created uh, by artists. It was created by D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. And a lot of the more out there, a lot of the more out there um, movies for the time used to come out of there so i'm thinking maybe that's why it got so um far despite not being a very um pandering movie to white people you know but i know once it did get out there the fbi got a wind of it and they were like how did this get so far and shut it down for what i understand yeah that's what what i was about to say um about the fbi uh censoring the movie getting out of theaters uh because I sound info was talking about, um, uh, I think it was audience, and you know what impact could this film could, what impact could the film have had on society had it been allowed to play? You know, would people have been imitating it and uh, starting uh, their own guerrilla movements? Um, I don't know. It's 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 uh, I guess uh, what, what's it called? Uh, it's kind of like. Um, you know, the what if, the historical fiction, like, uh, what if Martin Luther King lived? What if this movie had stayed in theaters? Uh, that kind of thing. I think, too, like, the question of, like, how did it 
get so far something like i mean the fbi as much as they are like on top of things they do let a lot of things slip uh sakai is a really good bit in his uh security manuals uh he talks about uh asada shakur's uh wanted poster and it being this really bad photo that didn't look anything like her uh and then all these people were posting up photos like these free asada uh photos uh and they were much better uh photographs of 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 asada than uh than the fbi had and everyone was like no you got to take that shit down because the fbi doesn't actually have the good photograph that you can identify her with uh (laughs) i think something else that happens too is that uh this climate this movie came out in was one of a lot of um black exploitation and and stuff like that kind of programmed uh so people kind of gave up a little bit too much more than they wanted there's a book that Ishmael Reed talks about FBI's, uh, E-Y-E-S, that talks about how, like, a lot of the programming that we get from different media actually spells out certain things that the FBI then interprets as, like, how different movements are going to proceed. Like, they kind of tell the temperature in the room. So I wonder if something like this reflects that, and they knew that having something like this out there would kind of inspire people to keep pushing forward where the 60s were kind of... the Stuff in the sixties was already kind of dying down. Well, I mean, they, must have, they must have definitely feared it was going to happen if they banned it in the first place. But it also seems like um, one of the rumors I heard was that because of the climate at the time, with all the black exploitation that was out there, that a lot of them just kind of thought this was going to be another one of those kind of cartoonishly kill whitey type movies, or um, like Sweetback or something that would kind of give people kind of catharsis and be like one of those um like three the hard way where jim kelly and jim brown and uh fred williamson are killing white supremacists and stuff like that and you know this thought was going to be just another black exploitation movie but i also wonder it was it was so practical they kind of talked about it a little bit earlier about how because of the um war on poverty so many people had it good in real life at this point that had already been kicked off for a couple of years so a bunch of people were probably coming out of grad school, undergrad, whatever, were making money and becoming that um, that locked-in bourgeoisie that Kathleen Cleaver talked about that she thought was one of the other things that undermined the Black Panther Party um, from the outside. Yeah, maybe, but but to me, to me, if they feared that, then they wouldn't have even tried to shut down the movie. They would have just let it uh, play. Like I think what scared them about the movie was it was very practical. It wasn't cartoonish at all. It wasn't a Superfly or Black Belt Jones coming out and beating up 20 white supremacists, you know, with a bunch of kicks or something. It was actually like Battle for Algiers. It was very, very, very practical. I think that's probably what scared them the most, I think. Yeah, T, before you uh, jumped into the voice chat, that was one of the first things I mentioned was the Battle of Algiers. What this movie reminded me of was almost sort of a precursor to a lot of the events as far as the, the way that the sequence in which guerrilla warfare unfolds, it reminded me of sort of a precursor to the sort of events that happened in the Battle of Algiers. And with respect to the sort of great society programs and, and people starting to reap the benefits of those, I, I think you, re, you really more see that in the 80s, both great society programs, early affirmative action, etc. The sort of expectation and the benefits of those really get locked in in the early 80s. In the late 60s, early 70s, those programs are still being tweaked and just getting up and running. So 
you still have an opportunity to to inspire people to you know, catalyze their anger based on a limited amount of returns that they're getting from the winds of the civil rights movement civil rights movement yeah i agree i think what uh she was talking about happened later on i think it was still very fresh at the time I'm also wondering, you know, is this the sort of movie where, you know, it's their direct lessons for today? Is it, it, did it seem dated to you at all to anyone on the the chat uh, overall? Or were there elements that you're able to see relating to events happening now? Or was it more sort of, you know, just a, a, a morality tale that you could see that, Oh, I, I understand where this is going and, I mean, and what it means. I mean, to me, it seemed like you can all you have to do is just kind of tweak the, te- the technologies and stuff. But the general broad strokes of the steps that a uh, revolution has to take, I think, are kind of um, very timely. You know, I, yeah. I, yeah, I just think certain technologies and certain things you just can't do or... You don't, it, you, it don't, is, you don't have to but the do one thing that I got, So the one thing that I noticed that's different between this and the book, is that in the book, it's made a lot more explicit, like, how much he gave up to get this far. And he knows explicitly, like, he might not make it far, that far. And he does die of the gunshot wound then, but he has, like, a, um, an internal monologue that kind of gives off, like, <sighs> you have to go through, I mean, it basically, he basically spells out that from, you know, 17, 18 on, he gave up his life to get here and he doesn't know if he'll win. And so like some of the dialogue kind of covers that, but you don't know if that's actually going to be a success. So, I mean, it's kind of like the real dream, you know, the, the give me liberty or give me death that um, American ethos that they kind of spread around or like the real freedom ethos. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think it's universal also in the sense that, the primary um, vehicle for the revolution is coming from poor working class, you know, I guess black people that maybe the upper working class, maybe like the the ex-wife who was married to the doctor, uh, where a lot of mainstream black people wouldn't even consider those people to be the, the vehicle for revolution. Um, and I don't know whether or not it comes from a sense of just um, understanding that these people don't have anything to lose, um, and it also kind of underscores this whole assimilation is black versus self-determining black, um, in my opinion. I thought one dated aspect was uh, when he uh, went to, like, uh, when he was talking to the prostitute and uh, he said she looked like a queen. Uh, I, I felt that was uh, dated and it was... I don't know. I think it was like part of that period where black people were uh, hearkening back to Africa and um, uh, older civilizations in um, mm. in the West Africa. I think I, I, I think I think the yeah I think the national crowds the nationalist crowd still does that very heavy. I don't think that's that's gone away at all, personally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, overall, I agree with the chat. I think that you know is is very much a. Uh, uh, many of the elements of the film related to things that were happening today, you could just switch out different slang, different technologies, etc. But the one thing that I thought that was a bit dated, and this is more in the way of thinking about revolution, uh, the idea of having the, <clears throat> the sort of 
great man syndrome. This guy was the one who came up with the idea. He's the one who held everyone together as opposed to the idea of a leaderless movement, which seems to be more of an appeal for people today. I mean, I'm thinking particularly about Al-Qaeda, which in many cases, while Osama bin Laden was the figurehead, it was really a leaderless movement that has lasted beyond Osama bin Laden. And it was really sort of a, an ideology more than a, a sort of a, a conventional guerrilla warfare sort of approach. So that thing, that aspect of it, and maybe that's just viewing it from the lens of 2020, that aspect of it seemed a bit dated to me because I think an equivalent today would very much be more of a sort of leaderless type movement like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, I didn't rewatch it tonight, but if I remember correctly, he it did have him as a leader, but he seemed to be conscious of it being able to survive past him. Like, that it wasn't like very personality driven to the point that if he died, it couldn't just so it, it seemed to have leadership in it, but to be agile at the same time because I I do think leaderlessness does have its limitations as well. Um, but I mean, you guys saw more recently tonight, so you can tell me if you think yeah, that was in a way that that, that leaderless Al Qaeda thing that does feed feed into kind of like how Occupy took off uh, earlier this decade. And Bin Laden was a CIA asset. Yeah. Um, but I, I think like the ideology, the like ideological terrorism, like it's easy to get people on board with that. But I think like actual political movements need leaders because you need somebody uh, to negotiate on behalf of, you know, this large population of uh, billions of black people. Here's, here's two things that really got me were that in that move in the movie, the people who have like who are like the landed bourgeoisie are the doctor, the cop, and the cop is kind of always universal. But he Freeman is actually a Korean War veteran, right? And nowadays, the the people I know who are like kind of the most bought in are veterans because they get so many more benefits than back then that they wouldn't likely do something like that. Like I don't know how that would actually spur because those people have gotten a lot you know the the loans and the gi bills and all that stuff has gotten uh, not tweaked but it's like the only thing left so by default it's worth so much more well yeah i mean veterans are the ones who are really benefiting from a socialist society more than anyone else the sort the sort of things that many people want to see both on the left and on the right veterans actually experience that and they actually have those sort of benefits in society but just just to back up a little bit uh about uh the you know, notion of a leader-based movement or a leaderless movement. To your right, they he did reiterate that. You know, if they cut off the head, then you know we, we should always have someone beneath and know what the sort of, for lack of a better term, chain of command is. However, they still looked at him with such reverence, and they still, you know, when he was around, they still really acted in a way that this guy is the one who's going to lead us to the promised land, as opposed to seeing it more as a horizontal organization. And I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a revolutionary, I'm not a guerrilla fighter. I don't know how you get around that other than to propagate an ideology. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point, like about human nature, like maybe to a certain degree is just not uh, avoidable that human beings naturally want to fill that vacuum with hero worship. Right, and, and one last point about that. Uh, I didn't see who on the chat said that, you know, a movement, particularly a political movement, needs leaders. 
But I think, unfortunately, that's also a weakness as well, because what we've seen, at least in the black community, the people who typically become leaders have been members of the clergy, you know, or people who were radical during the height of the civil rights movement, but became accommodationists as time went on, just because that's largely the nature of the way things happen. As you get older, you start to think about, you know, everything that you have to lose versus, you know, the the fire and passion of of youth. And I don't know how you get around that. I mean, two problems with leaders is one, you can make them accommodationist by like buying them off. But then the other aspect is if you um, kill them, you can demoralize the uh, masses, too, because people just kind of uh, lose hope. But I think the killing thing can go one way or the other. I think they kind of realize that because sometimes if you kill the leader, it might anger and galvanize the people so much they start rioting and doing stuff. So I think... They know those two options are available, but if they can, they'd rather buy off the leader and, and you know, get him to accommodate than to uh, kill him and have it go either way and to have, like, riots like it did in the 60s. But I do think there's a strength and a weakness both to leader list movements and movements with leaders. You guys can tell me if you agree or disagree, but I feel like leader list movements are able to grow much faster and generate enthusiasm much faster. Like the way Occupy just seemed to pop up overnight, the way Black Lives Matter just seemed to pop up everywhere. You know, I think that's something that uh, the agileness of leaderless movements and how fast they spread and just they almost spread like memes. I think that's a real good strength of leaderless movements, the enthusiasm. But I think they hit a wall sooner. Uh, like, like there seems to be a wall. I don't know what that wall is, but I, I notice it a lot. Like, there seems to be a wall where it seems like, okay, this is a point where a leader would come in handy, and we don't have one. I think someone said, you know, to, to negotiate demands or to bring demands to the other side or to to do certain things. And I think the answer is someone has to figure out the pros and cons of both and come up with some kind of blended system. But I don't know who that is, what that is. Well, I think the blended system is something more like the IRA and Sinn Féin, where you had a political wing and then you had the guerrilla wing. Uh, it, it makes it, it it's it still ends up creating de facto leaders because you have a political arm, but it sort of isolates the leaders from the violence and from the, the guerrilla tactics. Uh, one of the other things that I didn't see in this movie that uh, really stuck out to me and this really comes from some of the things that you've said to you over the last few months and I, I think one of the guests said it as well that these sort of movements tend to attract people who are you know either have mental issues or unhinged and I think leaderless movements in particular you know have the the capacity to attract people who are you know missing something in their lives and not maybe not necessarily attached to the um, to the actual goals of the movement but they they want to belong and you know, and, and I think, or, that, even, or even attached to reality, like a little bit uh, out there in the head. Right. Exactly. And I think that those people have always been a part of, you know, any sort of guerrilla movement. And it would have been interesting to see a character like that who was both helpful because you need a warm body, you need you know people to help build this movement, but also was sort of like playing with fire. Oh, that's a great point. That would have been great to put in there. Um, for the record, it was Bill Fletcher that um, that confirmed that that was something that undid movements in his day for people wondering who the guest was that he's that he's talking about
Yeah, uh, like I guess I guess you covered uh, like two of the three uh, methods they uh, deal with leaders: buying them off, killing them, and uh, then the third one would be uh, imprisoning them. Uh, you know, having political prisoners. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I don't, I don't know if anyone mentioned that, but you're right. That's the other one, imprisoning them. Yeah. What about exile? Yeah. Napoleon yeah. came back twice. <laughs> yeah, and, and T, I, I would add that I think the option of actually killing the leader perhaps isn't as um, I don't know, last resort as it as perhaps you would think it would be because just looking at the way the, the long-term impact that those deaths had, yes, there was unrest for the immediate aftermath of the, of the killing and some years after that, but ultimately they were able to reassert control and you know understand enough what was happening to provide crumbs to you know satisfy people and to really sort of take the time to understand how to control things better than before. That's, a great, that's a great point. Just... Uh, also, I'll add this too. Um... When you kill them, you can change the image because now Malcolm X is mo mostly known for feeling bad for hurting a white girl's feelings and realizing <laughs> he was wrong. And Martin Luther King just wanted people to hold hands. You know, like like, like all yeah. the socialist and communistic aspects of Martin Luther King talking about wanting um, to get a check and get reparations and a lot of his chastising of white moderates and all that stuff. That's kind of gone to the wayside and... It's just I had a dream. I want white children and black children to hold hands, and you know, everyone not see color. Like all this crap. That's like five percent of anything he ever said. Yeah, and uh, Cornell West has a great phrase. Phrase he says calls it the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King, and I think that really Martin Luther King really like this sort of like big, like warm, cozy Santa Claus type figure for civil rights, more than the sort of you know mixed bag that he actually was. I suspect the Martin Luther King, I mean, the Malcolm X book by Alex Haley, too, even though at, at the time I really revered it, I suspect that book was also part of a project in a way because um, Alex Haley was kind of a guy who really wanted money and recognition. And a lot of his actual books, like Roots, were full of lies. And he was big into um, kind of being marketable. I mean, he was a great writer, and the book was very good, but. Malcolm X died before that book was completed and Alex Haley had to bring it home and he also did an epilogue and he had free reign to kind of really shape Malcolm X's uh, trajectory after Mecca because of it you know and I always wonder how much liberties um, Alex Haley took to create a kind of Santa Clausification of Malcolm X as well because yeah, that book does a really hard turn, and it makes it really easy for, I think, a lot of moderate white people to enjoy the book. This idea that he really, really realized he was duped, and white people aren't so bad, and he was on his way to just creating this um, kind of rainbow coalition view of, of race relations. Funny you said that, because... Okay, I know this is the wrong place to bring this up, but Alex Haley did, well, he did make a decision in uh, opting out certain parts of Malcolm X's not-so-great side, and that was being anti-Semitism. Yeah. And we all know that Malcolm X 
you know, just like when, you know, within the group that he was involved with, the NOI, there were some pretty negative aspects of that. And Haley just completely opted that out. So, you know, he, it's, it's abundantly clear that had he left that, we would not be seeing the same Malcolm X in terms of that reverence. Yeah, I mean, in, in both cases, in King and X, it's the sort of the triumph of respectability politics and, and self-policing within the black community by so-called gatekeepers. Has anybody read that article? Um, I, I couldn't get to it because it's behind a paywall. Uh, it was about uh, Martin Luther King and uh, supposed uh, FBI um, uh, transcripts of recordings which uh, showed him uh, drinking and uh, the orgies? cheating on his wife. Huh? Yeah, yeah, with the orgies and stuff? Yeah, yeah, the orgies. I mean, like, I, I, I don't mind if, my, if uh, Martin had orgies. Uh, that sounds like some king shit. But um, <laughs> uh, I, like, I, I'm still, like, apparently the, the recordings will be released in 2027. But, uh, Reading a, uh, <laughs> if, if you believe the FBI, they'll be released in 2027. Exactly. Yeah, the same organization who did everything and anything to subvert any sort of like black liberation movement. Like we're supposed to believe all that nonsense, right? But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, who knows one, what happened? And one thing I wish people would say more is like, uh, and I think Yakub kind of hit and hinted at this. Hey, am I, I missing it, half of the conversation here? Uh, I'm not sure. I think you might you be because I can I, hear you, but if, I feel like I'm missing like a big chunk of stuff. I'm can sorry. You, can, uh, you, can you can you hear continue you, on though. Can you hear Yakub at all? Oh, oh, I don't he know. He said he could. He said he could. Okay, okay. Like, um, I think something to take into account is just hey, maybe so what? Like, like this idea that if if people are remembering if Martin Luther King was a marriage counselor and that was his claim to fame then i can understand okay him cheating on his <laughs> wife and having orgies this changes everything but i don't understand really and this is like a, i guess a controversial thing to say because when people are arguing about this on twitter i kind of brought up i said instead of arguing whether it's true or not why should we why don't we argue about if it matters like okay. like even if you did have all yeah, these I orgies know. i don't really what it has to do with whether black people should be able to vote whether um you know like I'm, i won't take any marriage advice from him you know exactly <laughs> yeah um, but, like, I mean, but I, it was i think it was um like i i don't know why i went looking for it but like i i wanted to see it and then i tried uh using the wayback machine to see if they maybe uh uh i could get it that way but i just i just couldn't read the whole thing and i found like somebody else like talking about how they believe the author and they were actually working on some projects that were uh, like historical works about Martin Luther King, and they just they just couldn't continue because he wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's so stupid. Yeah, I, I was like, why are you such a little bitch? Just finish it if you really care about like the history of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's role. Just I don't know. Do you know how many people we study who? Do you know how many people we study who just had very? Tr I mean, like if we can study founding fathers and they go back to what was said earlier, and, and they own people. Can't really, uh, I can't human really trust the FBI. Um, okay, if I remember like, correctly, Encore Magazine was a huge spy magazine, basically sponsored by the CIA and FBI yeah. to put push propaganda by a bunch of writers 
at the time. And even at the time, like the FBI was putting propaganda of people who were like, um, what's her name, Viola Luzo, who's always talked about as like, you know, pretty noble lady. But immediately after she was killed, they started saying that, you know, she was guzzling down cum from a bunch of black guys. Like there was nefarious stuff that they pushed out there immediately after like somebody was just killed by a bunch of, you know, redneck Southerners. It's hard to believe like MLK very well could have done it. I just don't believe that the FBI. It's just hard to do that. Oh yeah, and and also I just think even if people do that, even if he did, like just who cares? It's it's like and I think I'm missing yeah. the other half of the conversation. Somebody else. So I'm sorry if I'm like jumping in and repeating stuff. Oh yeah, it's fine. The, the um one last thing I'll I'll say and then then I'll be quiet for a while is, uh, I mean we have people that we still um revere to this day or at least read about and they like own slaves. It, it's just crazy that we, that we can still have people in textbooks who physically own people and rape people, but uh, this guy cheating on his statues. wife is too much. What? Agreed. They have yeah, statues I, I, and monuments. Yeah, exactly. George Washington, his face got carved into a mountain. Well, I mean, and, and I think an even more sort of analogous example is that we, we revere and venerate JFK, and it's you know very clear that he was a philanderer. And if we could do that for JFK, there's no reason why we couldn't do that for MLK. And they were alive at the same time, so you can't even use the, oh, the founding fathers were a product of the time, but right. Malcolm wasn't but exactly. There. That's why I think that JFK is a, is a good, I mean... To, yeah, it's a better example, argument, actually. JFK, yeah. is a good JFK had the FBI working for him, or right. at least... That's like uh, another example uh, of uh, someone you kill, and then you can kind of totally shape their image, right? Yeah. I think that the... Yeah. Someone brought up uh, Sinn Féin earlier... I don't know if the kind of like political and guerrilla like two separate movements is super possible. Uh, there's a really good argue, uh, article in Jacobin. It's an interview with one of the heads of the Communist Party of the Philippines. And he talks about how they never had a political wing because in Southeast Asia, there's the Jakarta method that will, can always be practiced on you. And they can always just come in and kill all your politicians, right? If they ever have a public face, then they can they can fucking wipe it out. Can you explain and the Jakarta? Always like, can you explain the Jakarta method? Because I've seen that term, but I've never known what it means. Uh, I think that maybe a good film for us to watch uh, sometime would be uh, the Act of Killing, uh, which goes over this a lot. Uh, but in Indonesia in the '60s, the largest communist party in the world was massacred, uh, like to the man. Uh, they killed one over one million people. They, they estimate one to six million people. Uh, they killed. And uh, it wiped out the largest communist party in the world. Uh, it's like uh, sixty-five to sixty-six, right? Is that the yeah, and it was uh, it was CIA. Like they were given lists of names, and it was it was really horrible. They. This is why I think that Sakai is a really good writer to study as well because he studies the Lumpen Prol. They hired like basically like kind of like like the guy who would rob you for like pocket change. To like massacre communists, right? They hired a bunch of kind of like these like whatever low level like gangsters and shit to like just massacre the left, uh, and it was a really really horrible movement, and it destroyed kind of progress and destroyed the idea of like the combo theory, like the idea that there would there would be this string of communist victories after Vietnam ended because they destroyed the communist movement in the South. I mean, I think the difference between that setting and the U.S. is that the U.S., for however performative it's been over the history of the country, does have 
a history of being a liberal democracy, having a constitution, having all these things that, you know, if you were to have a government to do those sorts of things, people could point to these things as, you know, for some form of protection as opposed to, you know, a, a government or a, a society where you don't have that sort of, even the, the backbone of, of democracy or the backbone of, of, a, of a constitution to point to and say, I, can, I, I have to be protected based on the rules of the way in which our society are structured. You know, if, if you're you know, moving from a feudal society to a, a, you know, a, a nominal democracy or dictatorship or whatever it is, but don't have those bones to point to and also a history of those those bones, those rules, those guidelines being respected. I think that you can essentially do whatever you want. You could, you know, wholesale kill millions of people and, you know, it, you know, and make a, you know, decent case that you're able to do this. A friend of mine who um, grew up in Ethiopia, he he said something to me that was really interesting. You know, during the, uh, the the period when they were rooting out communism there, he said, you know, you would be a political person, you would do something that would totally be within the law, but then the dictator would convene parliament, they pass a law backdated for what you did, and then take you to jail. If you're in a political environment like that you know, what, there's really very little you can do. I think one irony is that the same thing that makes them able to get away with all that stuff and makes it harder for us to get away with it is also something that, in a way, helps it happen here too. Because if this, this kind of false security I think people get about... All the things you said, which is, oh my God, we have these systems here. It's very hard to do. That kind of makes us gaslight ourselves. Whereas, at least with the Philippines and those other places, we can believe anything. You know, like uh, if someone comes and says, yeah, the government wiped everybody out. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, of course they did. If someone says here, it's like um, JFK was a conspiracy. People are like, come on. This, there's too many things. Checks and balances to allow that of, uh, um, to happen. That book by uh, uh, Marquez, A uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. Uh, in the book, uh, there's a character who witnesses a massacre, like of uh, a union movement in a banana republic. And uh, because they killed everybody, nobody knows about it. And he keeps telling people about it. And they don't believe him. That's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you could do things on a bigger scale in a place like that. But... The plus side is everyone can believe it's uh, possible where they probably can get away with less here. But what they the little things they do do, um, people talk themselves out of thinking that America can really do it. Like, like for example, what someone described about paying people like pennies to um, kill all the communists and stuff. For all we know, that could have been what happened with uh, Malcolm X. They might have just gotten a handful of um, black Muslims and stuff. A lot of people, even the Muslim in the black Muslims weren't sure who those guys were, you know? They could have totally well, been paid off by the FBI to do that. Did you guys Did you guys see that documentary? I believe it was on Netflix where they actually go over the assassination of Malcolm X. And apparently the guy who did it um, was from Newark. Um, I forget what the name of the documentary is, but... Uh, yeah, I, I remember it came out a year or two ago. I heard some mixed things. Malcolm X? Yes, yes. What were your thoughts on it? There's like 20 versions of that story. Yeah. It comes up with like 
Uh, I mean, that documentary is just the most popular one, but there's like a bunch of them. And there's yeah. just no determination of like who did it. It could have been one of like 50 people. Mm-hmm. My, just, my problem with never conspiracy know. theories, though, just in general, is that so many people have to keep their mouths shut in order for them to work. And I mean, I've worked in government and people just don't have that sort of operational discipline. Somebody would say something, whether they tell their wives, whether they tell their friends. It's just in order for a, a true complex conspiracy to work, you have to have people who are disciplined and committed and willing to take that to their graves. And those people are just extremely rare. My two theories on conspiracy theories. I'm going to push back a little mm-hmm. bit in that a lot of conspiracy, not a lot, enough come out as having merit and they just kind of float away. Um, I think there's a bunch of people who've like, had deathbed confessions. It, yeah. it, they're not all, you know, they painted houses somewhere. You know, that um, Kill the Irishman that uh, De Niro did. Not like that type of stuff, but just like small stuff. Like, yeah, we went to this village and we killed a bunch of people. Like, Malay Massacre type of stuff. And it just comes out and you find out, like, you know, 500 people were massacred in a village one day and then nothing happens. Right. I think what they do, too, is drown it out with noise. So they, as, 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 as in the conspiracy can come out, but maybe 50 it. other conspiracy theories come out at the same time. And how do you know which one to listen to as far as being true? Like, I, got, I think what they do now is they just, instead of trying to suppress things, they just have a lot of things come out and drown it out with 50 other um, pieces of noise as well. Right. And, and when I talk about conspiracy theories, I'm thinking in terms of these sort of complex webs. The sort of things like a very straightforward, well, I mean, it's not straightforward, people died, but a massacre or someone was killed, something that's very sort of, straightforward i have no problem believing that that happened if indeed it's something that just didn't the information didn't get out but just this sort of like complex web of planning of you know interlinking groups of you know sort of fantastic almost fantastical yeah. notion of, of how something i just yeah i, I agree know. i agree with that i think they're a lot I think, I think they're a lot yeah. messier i think they're a lot messier than anyone gives them credit for and less organized a lot messier and a lot simpler there's not yeah. a lot of intrigue to them there's just like Sometimes they're just opportunists that take advantage of a situation. Sometimes it's five different things that are being put in motion, and one of them just happens to work, but they don't even know that it, it worked. It wasn't the sort of, you know, great controlled plan. For, for, like the, said, for example, the Malcolm X thing, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like one or two mid-level FBI guys who just ran something off the books and didn't yeah. even tell anyone else in the department, as opposed to like five layers of government, you know, from the top down. Um, exactly. Planning it. Exactly. Yeah, like like Johnson gave the order, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No. Or, 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 or or Jagger Hoover had some kind of giant uh, thing from the top down that you know he, he, he said... was in the mosque watching. <laughs> um, but but yeah, that's what I figure movies are for to like sort of um, like make the uh, spy seem like superhuman to make them like more competent than they actually are. Right. I mean, it also. In a, in a sort of sometimes in an explicit way, sometimes in an implied way, it endears people to the concept of effective, effective, just moral law enforcement. Yeah, there's so many shows. Like my parents watch tons of like, like crime shows, like NCIS and that kind of thing. And I just, I just think it's all garbage um, because you, you can see, like if you're paying attention, you can see like behind it, like there are all these politics. But my parents like watch like uh i don't know uh, nbc or 
MSNBC. I don't know. Uh, and just uh, just they get their news from TV, and then they watch like these crime shows. Well, and the sort so of the propaganda is just being like fed to them. Oh uh, yeah. When, when they're and most the sort of weak, like really after work, and they're tired. And the sort of people who really benefited from that recently are people like. James Comey, Malcolm Nance, um, Mueller, people really projected these sort of almost superhero or super spy type uh, attributes to these people, expecting them to have some great insight that they never had. But but uh, you also hear all those stories about like some cops, some cops raid some place and then there's an undercover that was there and then the undercover has to tell them, uh, actually I'm running an undercover operation or maybe it's a whole different department like the cops come in, but then it's the feds who are um, in there, or how the FBI was bugging. Um, um, what's it? What what's his name? Um, oh, um, you're talking about um, the mafia guy, March on Washington, March Marco. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, March yeah. on Washington. The the um, guy he was gay. He was gay. Bayard he, Rustin. Yeah, yeah, Bayard, Bayard Rustin. Yeah, the FBI yeah. was. Um, bugging him and then the cia was like wait uh we're working him he's one of our assets and they're like oh my bad like i think that's kind of what a lot of conspiracies really are like i think it's just a bunch of people working at cross purposes a bunch of people don't even know what the other person is doing and things get lost in the mix things get lost in the sauce well i'll give you i'll give you two that are really related closely related with like the during the march in washington well actually the freedom summer um right after the four little girls were blown up in that church uh, I think it was uh, Kwame Ture wound up going into one of the police offices and seeing the chief of police talking with a Klan member talking w- and talking to the FBI agents. And they were all like laughing together, you know, having a go- like, backslapping type of stuff. And that's one of those things where they probably knew each other and had to like have some type of agreement. That's a very strange situation to see those people all in the same room. And then fast forward, uh, I don't know when it actually happened, but those four little girls that were uh, blown up in that church one of them was sto- was stolen from her grave. So, like, somebody knows what happens there, but we don't know exactly why, but that's, like, a weird thing that it's known about, it's not talked about, but it occurred all in this environment. But, but, but also, two competing things could have happened there. The FBI, the Klan, and the local police could have gotten together and planned something, or it could be the three of them just agreed not to ask a lot of questions, as in, you know... We're, we're going to, none of us are going to have the full story, but, but none of us are going to really go come hard at each other. Like, at, at the end or, of the day, none of us care. Or it being the South, it could have been some drunk redneck teenagers. Nah, it was, nah, man, it was a lot more nefarious than that. Like, the FBI was sending out, like, mafia types down there to solve some of the problems that the FBI didn't want to solve themselves. Right. Like, it was, it, there's a lot of weird shit that happened where there was some, like, working around and, you know, we'll sacrifice these people in order to solve this problem, but we won't solve a bigger problem. Like, a lot of just... Yeah, and, and, there's always a, and there's always a chance that there's no one person who knows the whole story. I think that's the main appeal of conspiracy theories is to believe someone out there has the whole story. And all we got to do is find out the story. I think it's also possible that, you know, a bunch of people had competing interests and were covering for each other, but no one really... Yeah. A, a good example is those uh, film noir movies, like, you know, like Maltese, Maltese Falcon type movies. And one thing about those movies is that I think is very realistic, even though they're, they're fictional, is this idea that you have two or three camps. Like, you know, I want the Maltese Falcon. Oh, I want my, my sister killed. 
you know, because she's going to get the inheritance. I, I want to solve the case and get, get my uh, payday. A bunch of people all kind of working with each other, but holding half the story from each other or just trying to get their part done. And it's not really as um, beautifully organized um, and and fancy a scheme as anybody would would think. You know, I feel I feel a lot of history is probably like that. But that scares people because I think it's, it's it's actually scarier to think that it's really that messy and random and self-interested um, and, and tenuous than, than th- that there's a real plan to all of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you really, um, you articulate exact, the point exactly what I was thinking. And I think you can extend that even to today with the embrace of QAnon. I think, you know, on the surface, Oof. when you were to look at a lot of the, the, the different pieces of this whole QAnon conspiracy web, you would think it would be disturbing, but I think for many people it's comforting to think there's some sort of unifying theme. There's some some great grand grand plan. You know, some you know control of hand making all of this happen. I think for many people that's much more comforting to, than to think that it's just you know messy, you know craven opportunism that's really driving people for political reasons, for economic reasons, etc. And there's no real plan behind it other than you know, the motivations of various constituencies and individuals that sometimes work together, but sometimes are at odds. Exactly. We're just a soul chaos. I think, I think another kind of really dark connection, though, especially with QAnon, is that in in Indonesia, the, the idea was that the feminists in the Communist Party were committing some sort of satanic sex rituals, right? And, and you know, perverting the kind of conservative nature of the nation, right, which is the central point of, like, QAnon, right, is that the the liberals and the Democrats and anyone that opposes Trump is part of this kind of, like, satanic sex pedophile, pedophile ring. Uh, and they can be killed, right, because pedophiles can be killed. You can see a million people on Facebook saying how they can kill pedophiles, uh, right, yeah. uh, and without without any sort of remorse. Uh, and to add to that, uh, have you guys heard about the Finders? Yeah. No. I have a legit like pedophile cult that I think the CIA accidentally started. Like they gave somebody too much free reign and they started a pedophile cult. And um Yeah, it was uh, like based in DC in uh Yeah, yeah right. It's, it's, it's near yeah, it's near like the cathedral. Uh, like, That'd be a great thing to make a list of all the things that uh, government has accidentally created. You know, to to, to to really drive home how disorganized and, and moment to moment a lot of this is. Look at Al Qaeda and how much of that was created by um, bad foresight in in Afghanistan because they just want to get rid of get rid of Russia. There's there's so many things that uh, kind of show how unsophisticated um, a lot of this stuff actually is. For, for example, when I read that book by um, Yasha Levine and had him on uh, Surveillance Valley. One thing that was very interesting to me was it was both super nefarious and scary, the government involvement in the internet, but also surprisingly um, incompetent. Like basically, they were expanding all these powers, finding all these ways to infiltrate people's lives. And most of what they were finding out was just junk. Like they were surveilling a million different things but when it came time to come with something cohesive out of what they were finding, um, 
in my mind, I just imagine they were creating these sophisticated algorithms to predict all types of crazy things about people. And it was like Sandra Bullock's The Net, and it was just uh, inescapable <laughs> and stuff. But really, it was like a bunch of people just wasting money. Um, like, all they were doing was finding more and more and better and better ways to surveil people. But all the promises that they said that they could do with the technology, 80% of it was bunk. Like, even to this day, all they've really figured out to do with the internet is try to find ways to sell people stuff. You know, despite all the infiltrations Google's doing and all this stuff, like, um, yeah. Right. Yeah, they can't be doing anything that that incredibly mind-blowing with any of this stuff yet, except... If they're trying to solve a crime, they'll just they can just snoop better, you know, and just uh, go into all your personal information. Or if they want to sell you something, they can get an idea of what you might want to buy, and that's basically it. Right, and I think one of the reasons why you know essentially advertising has become the, the biggest win of you know the the internet age is because those are where our values lie, you know. Be, making sure that you know the customer can be taken care of, and that you have at least from a sort of general standpoint that you have everything at your fingertips and that people are spending money and, you know, much of so much of the economy is built around retail versus, you know, industry manufacturing, etc. And we really put all of our resources into to making commodifying and making everything a sort of retail experience, whether that be healthcare, whether that be higher education, on and on and on. And so it makes sense that, you know, the sort of the largest you know, project for concentrating information and people's access to it would ultimately be organically in the service of selling people things. I mean, isn't that part of the Alfred Bernays plan? The, you know, the, the, the creation of marketing and uh, kind of public manipulation, public relations, it does do that and is the ultimate value. Like, you know, the, the retail part is a portion of it and the government control of like, you know, uh, sort of commanding an economy in a sort of way, that invisible hand, but then also like controlling what people interpret and to get to see through their media. Like that's that ultimate payoff that doesn't really have a monetary yeah. value, but it does yeah. really influence what you're going to get and like how and, you're going to see the world. And the uh, like to create people's desires yeah. through your propaganda. Like yeah. The well, edited world makes you think you're more free than you actually are. Well, and also one of the sort of things that, you know, Bernays wanted to see is essentially making being a consumer part of a lifestyle, making it an integral part of what it is to exist in society, as opposed to this sort of separate thing. My refrigerator broke down. I have to buy a new refrigerator. It's like, no, they, there's a nice new refrigerator that's an Internet of Things that has a, you know, whatever. You can chill wine. I'm going to get that because it's it's new and it's shiny. And being a consumer in that sort of way, as opposed to you know, being someone who buys things when they need it has become a part of who we are. Not civil rights, but yeah, civil keeping rights. up with the uh, Joneses and um, the uh, cruelty-free lemonade. Yeah, I mean, being able to express your politics, you know, your style, you know, your desires, etc. Being able to do all that through your purchases. Yeah, I also think it's one of those fields where not much has changed. They just kind of refined uh, what already works. Like, like, like people know how to sell things to people. Uh, they kind of figured it out very early on in, in capitalism. Like, you know, figure out what people uh, feel like they lack and promise you can give it to them and put a price mm -hmm. on it. And probably like the most 
recent you know innovation probably is to create the idea that that they lack something if they don't lack it but other than that i mean like i think it's very easy to just take all technology and just apply it to selling things to people because that's something that they figured out uh, for a hundred years now. I mean, I mean, for, for hundreds of years now, not a hundred <laughs> years, for, for, for hundreds of years. But all the other stuff is like hard, L- like figuring out how to um, predict uh, things that will create world peace, uh, reliable criminal profiles, and like all the stuff that they, all, the, all the other stuff they promise. They make big promises, but it always like flops. Like like all the all the genes they promise they can isolate intelligence genes, alcoholism genes. All that research always ends up like flopping beyond the initial grand pronouncements. But selling stuff to people and and conning people is really old under capitalism. Right. And all you gotta do is just take the existing technology and just refine the model you already have. Like the model is flawless. Well, right, and it also the the point that you're making really illustrates the fact that there's an unwillingness to commit the sort of effort and resources to those sorts of things that you were talking about. Exactly. Because it, there's no monetary gain in it, <laughs> you know. The, there's no there's no way for someone to get rich off of it. There's no way to sort of, you know, prime the pump of capitalism yeah. by focusing on those things, mm. or or at least not get rich quarter to quarter. Because that's nothing about capitalism and boardrooms. You have to be making money every quarter. You can't say, "Hey, give me ten years, but it's really going to pay off." It's not going to work. You're going to get right. You're going to kicked out by the board. And, yeah. and that sort of so, speaks uh, to. Well, uh, over over a, a multi-year period, uh, well, it's not profitable enough. And that speaks to an, an overall triumph of short-term thinking over long-term thinking, even to the point of quarters. You know, again, I mentioned I, I've worked in, the, in government in the past, and even in government, their performance quarterly reviews are based on the sort of corporate model. Even if you're doing something like social work, you know, it's it's still it's taken the sort of corporate corporatization approach towards everything and making everything this sort of return on investment sort of thing as opposed to you know actually understanding that some things are outside of a return on investment dynamic some things are just a part of either making people's lives better improving the world or is just makes sense for the longevity of society in government even without the corporate model the longest people think, even without the corporate model, is two years or four years because of elections. And even that is not really a long time to figure out how anything works, you know, like uh, like as far as big policies. If you make a big sweeping policy, in two or four years, you can't really get a real idea of what the real effects are um, of it. So imagine a corporate quarterly model, how, how much more inefficient uh, that is on top of it. It's It's... So, so yeah, I think the corporate model thing is totally true. But I think even without the corporate model and the um, election model, even that's a problem. Like, if I, as a president, right. create, create a policy and it has a lot of harm, no one's really going to know how much harm, like, say, the Great Society really had in the black community until a couple of decades under its belt. Uh, by, that, by then, where is Lyndon Johnson? By the time um, Clinton's policies really, like, wreaked the full havoc and is fully understood... He's long gone. It kind of bit right. his, it kind of bit his wife in the butt to a degree, but well, one yeah, of the different. Yeah. I'm thinking a way that if if you know if if solving a concrete problem does not result in ROI or increased ARPU or increased cash flow, then a lot of people just don't think that it's solving a concrete problem. 
you know, and it takes a long time to solve concrete problems, like, you know, so uh, whenever right, you put that corporate aspect in it. One of the things we've seen, though, and it's really started in a large way under Obama, is the use of one particular policy mechanism that sort of primes the pump and makes it seem like you solved or addressed the problem, and that's using executive orders versus legislation or litigation or any sort of budget allocation. As the executive, you can create an executive order demanding that you know the Department of Defense do X, Y, and Z, and you bypass Congress, you bypass the electorate, and that executive order stays in place while you're in power. But as soon as the next person comes in, they wash that out and they put in their own executive orders. But I mean, we've really seen this sort of writ large over the last 12 years between Obama and Trump. Trump has utilized executive orders in a way that that really sort of built on the precedent of Obama. I feel it's uh, like when it's publicized that you're using all of these executive orders, it really helps rally your base. I, I don't know. I, I think people don't don't understand the, the sort of specifics of policy mechanisms enough that that saying something like, oh, it's an executive order really sort of resonates with them. I mean, most people don't know the difference between regulation and legislation, let alone an executive order. So yeah. many people think executive orders are just permanent, permanent pieces of law. They can become that by default, but like a lot of it is just the inability to do real legislative convincing and like having people buy into like what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, because they're ultimately going to have their own biases against it or just not understand or whatever. But that's where the courts used to be. And now, I guess, or for the past 20 years, executive orders have been in place. And so it's kind of cooked. I don't know how anything happens now. I think to Yakub's point, though, like in rallying, when we talk about Trump's base, and if we're if we're gonna have to go and generalize, like executive orders, to me, from my perspective, <laughs> seems like it would be, it would be an appeal to Trump's base because it's Trump buck, uh, bucking the system, you know. So, so I kind of understand mm. where Yakub's coming from, and it doesn't even matter, like the understanding about the legislative process and the oversight of the formalized process doesn't matter to Trump's voting base. And, I, and I'm sorry to say that, but that's just a generalization on my part. But the way I see this used now, it's just like, yeah, Trump's, he's bucking the system and he's taking it to big government and stuff. But that's that's just my conjecture. Well, I, I think, yeah, um, good point. yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, more specifically, I think it, sh- it shows Trump is actually doing something. He made something happen. And that's the, that's the sort of, genius of an executive order that you can bypass all these things that typically end up slowing down the process of actually putting other sorts of policies in place. You can just, you know, with a stroke of the pen, say we're doing this. Yeah, then you get the media response and, um, you know, your your base uh, feeds off of that, uh, I guess, um, like, Surprise that the media has and the outrage that they have and your base loves that so that or Trump's base loves that so Yeah, just to um, reiterate the point um, And, and I, I want to say too that I, I just don't want to relegate that just to Trump's base Because we're seeing a lot of rhetoric at least like on the left of the Democratic side or whatever centralized Democrats on like these certain initiatives that's riling people up and There may not be any substantive process-based oversight you know on addressing a long-term solution like you know what I mean like I think about that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris 
anti-lynching campaign. You know what I mean? But mm. and, and you know, when you think about it, like lynching is murder. So we already have laws in, in place <laughs> yeah. that say yeah. murder is wrong. So what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> right. I mean, but that, that's that's some of the same arguments that people, including uh, and I'm not saying this wrong. I, I agree with this. That some, but that's one of the arguments that people make against uh, hate crimes legislation. It's like murder is murder. Why create this? You know, subset of laws mm-hmm. just to sort of signal that we acknowledge that you you know whatever group have been historically you know oppressed and you've historically dealt with injustice and so we'll create a sort of boutique set of laws to deal with the same sort of crimes that are already covered under laws that currently exist right i, I assume that it was to uh, override uh, local indifference or uh, complicity in uh, uh federal in, uh, oversight type of thing yeah in, exactly federal oversight the fbi comes in as uh, the uh, local government refuses to um, stop the Klan from lynching people. Mm. That's a very good point as well. Um, um, to jump back to the, the theme of the chat, the, the movie, um, <laughs> one, one of the things that um, it made me think of, and I don't know if anyone in the chat has seen this movie, but it, it made me think of another movie that came out around a similar time, uh, different in ultimate theme and concept, but also very sort of similar mood was uh, Blue Collar with Richard Pryor mm. and Yapikoto and uh, yes. Harvey Keitel. Yep. Just a lot, particularly the heist elements and just the dynamics and the sort of things that were you know, the, the, the sort of issues of the day that were illustrated by what happened in the film. Spook Who Sat By The Door reminded me a lot of Blue Collar. Am, am I off on that for those who've, who've seen the movie? Uh, I mean, it definitely shows like a need to overturn certain systems, how they're kind of fucked. Yeah, I yes, I'd say the tone is different, but the ultimate thing, yeah, there's a, a kernel there that definitely works true. Right, and in uh, Blue Collar, they were talking about they you know were essentially highlighting not only sort of the current injustices, but also unfairness within the union based on race. Yeah, yeah. and that's definitely true. Because, like, that's, a, that's the thing is that um, unions are not necessarily supposed to be fully antagonistic. They are ultimately, like, the mediating force between labor and the bosses. Like, I, and, uh, and it's more the, the, the hierarchy within the union. So, like, when you're at the top, you wind up having a lot more inside knowledge to kind of either focus energy in a – you can – Use your own internal logic to kind of force something to a head or prevent something from getting even hotter than it needs to be. Um, or you get kind of coerced into doing something just because they recognize that you have a lot more power in a certain place. So it's, it's a very tricky place to be. And like unions then, I can't imagine. But they're very, they're just, yeah, they're, they're an interesting animal. Yeah. I was thinking about the uh, plot point of him uh, using the radio as a propaganda um, avenue and the sort of Uncle Tom character that, you know, his friend eventually got wind of and sort of got him caught towards the end of the movie and he ended up having to kill his friend. Yeah, I think that guy was a true believer. 
Yeah, I mean, I, are you talking about the the, the cop who was killed, or or the you're saying the cop was a true believer? Yeah, I think he was a true believer of like um, the law and order, America is good and noble. Like he and you know the rabble need to be oh, okay, disciplined cool. and have law and order. You know, like they need a Protestant work ethic. I think that type of true believer, not like uh, liberty, liberation. You know, give me liberty or death to the true believer. Well, I mean, he was a li- true believer. Li- uh, I I read him as a bit more complex than that. I I think that yeah, I, I, I thought I thought he came across as more sort of like not understanding what other option there was, and that. The road that you know the revolutionaries were taking them down would ultimately, you know, end in tears and not achieve very much. I mean, he was skeptical of of their of of their methods and their their aims, as opposed to the sort of status quo, which he admitted was unfair, mm-hmm. but had some sort of stability to it, had some sort of predictability to it, as opposed to the unknown. Yeah, and I mean that's what I apply that that into that true believer, like you know. This is not the best system, but this is what the best we got. So we got to do with this. You know, d- d- does that make sense? Yeah, I, I guess just when I think of the term of true believer, I, I, I think of someone who's sort of delusional. And I didn't think the guy was delusional. Yeah, so or overzealous, like maybe uh, like um, evangelizing the system. Mm. Uh, I, I felt that guy was yeah, he was conflicted, and um, but I, at the end, like uh, his uh, Friedman. Uh, decided, uh, Freeman decided that he couldn't, you know, convince his friend, so he killed him. Yeah, and in the book, it's a lot more, it's a lot more ambiguous as to which one was the traitor. And it is in the movie, but he gets kind of twisted up about it a little bit more, and isn't quite sure if he should have killed him. But I remember him killing both of them. The he might have killed three people. That were like tied up, like the Dahomey woman, the ex, the, the woman married to the doctor, and his friend. Like it was, a, it was a lot of tension at the end of it, towards the end of it. I, I'm curious. I'm curious if the book uh, felt dated. I mean, I haven't, I haven't read it. It's a, it's a breezy read, man. Uh, I, I definitely recommend it. No, I'm, I was asking if you thought it felt dated or not, or if it, it was as, as resonant as the, the film was. No, like it. It felt it took it a lot more s- dated. No, because um, it's basically like urban guerrilla warfare. So it's not. I mean, the weaponry might be the only thing that was dated, but it's like, how do you infiltrate? How do you learn information? How do you like implement a small cadre of people and then move them forward? Uh, I mean, the only thing that feels dated to me is that like I don't think people would actually understand what you're actually trying to do. Hmm. I mean, today it feels nobody's going to be leading a column of, 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 you know, disaffected former REI employees to, you know, take over the, the Pentagon from here. You know, like it, it's and there's a lot of poor people that live in the D.C. area. Trust me. But it just doesn't feel like that is even possible. So that's where it would feel dated to me. Um, and, and, and even looking at this, the way the city was structured, uh, like there's fashionable dive bars but that bar in u street doesn't exist like that anymore um it, i mean it, yeah just certain things like that stood out so i'm sorry in the book the book takes place in it, dc and the, yeah the first half of the book is in dc yeah um and he has a lot of encounters like 
there's that scene at the very beginning where he's that uh, the the bartender waiter is grabbing the drink and he and the guy he and that guy get in a fist fight. Um, and he gets in a fight with the driver. Like he he gets called out as a coon a lot. Like he goes undercover and it's stretched out how much shit he takes. And so he winds up taking a lot. Of, he eats a lot of shit for a lot of years. I mean, it basically plays out to you know five years or something like that. Does it describe how he got started with the plan? Because from the movie, it kind of makes it seem like he arrived at the CIA with this plan, but they never really kind of say like what the genesis of it um, was. Like, was there ever a point where he actually wanted it in earnest, and then he uh, changed, or was there like a, a formative? moment i mean it doesn't really change the overall impact of the movie but it's more just about curiosity because I, I, I find that kind of interesting uh he, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't come out like in the beginning saying he's going to go he's definitely going in there to learn as much as he can to try and help his people that's basic from the outset it doesn't say that he's going to like start an uprising start a guerrilla warfare like endeavor but he winds up coming to that decision ultimately where he's like god I, I, it's but, when he decides but basically, to go back. But, but basically, the mindset predates him uh, going to the academy, right? Yeah, the mindset is there. Like he's okay. not going there to be gung ho and like you know give all he can get and become you know GI Joe type of the guy. No, no, yeah. he he knows that he wants to try and learn what he can to help his people do what he can, and he gets in deep. It's like five years, and then he makes the decision to start the Guerrilla Warfare when he goes back to I think it's Chicago or Detroit. I can't remember what it was. Um, but that's when it kind of like solidifies, and that's when he starts reaching out to the. He's like calling up old friends, trying to meet up with them, trying to like get the ball rolling, and that's when it starts to like coming to fruition. And, and, and like he knows what he's leaning towards, but it. When you finish the book, you kind of realize that that's what he was going to do the whole time. Mm. One part of the book, I mean, of the movie that I like, <coughs> like I didn't, I didn't read the book yet. I own the book, but I haven't had a chance to read it. Um, one thing I like is that. It kind of shows how hard it is if you really want to do stuff like that to find like-minded people. So he has like these yep. people who, on paper, have a lot of great talents that would, um, you know, really help him. But they're just not going to want to go along. I mean, the most obvious example is the um, cop. You know, his his training and his um, mindset would be a, a great asset but at the end of the day he uh doesn't want to rock rock the boat or he has a good thing you know he, he just wants to get his retirement or follow the rules and stuff and but even like his his bushy girlfriend like with her, with her social connections and things like that she could probably be she probably has skills to bear you know um but the, yeah it, the close yeah sorry the closest real life analogy would be shay because it's a Shay, what, like three or four times to try and get something started? And that was after he did like that motorcycle ride. But he went like all over the place trying to find the revolution. And he finally wound up in Cuba. And it was the right time for the right things. And he met some of the right people. And then it, it, that, that finding those right people and the right conditions, it got it started. But then it, you know, ultimately would have wound up like what happened to him in Bolivia. You know, like it just, yeah. all those things kind of came together. But yeah, that's, I think that's what that, this book kind of tried to do. I have to tell that story. Part of me wonders why he couldn't. Uh, hello? Somebody has some kind of feedback going on, but I don't know who it is. Is it, um, is it you, Yaku? Are you having a feedback? Um, I don't think so. 
Okay. I think it was Gav. I think Gav's connection's a little spotty. Alright. Um, I, I guess uh, part of me wonders, uh, you know, like how, I guess, leaders in political movements can be bought off, but, you know, uh, the, the people around him that has that have the skills that he would, I guess, like to uh, utilize, how they can't be bought off or convinced. Uh, one thing I, mean, I wonder about is... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. Uh, one thing I, I think about now is how much I think even worse it is because I feel like now they kind of elevated people who aren't really that good at what they do as the mascots and stuff or the people with um platforms so it's like like, like, for, like for example if you if you wanted if you wanted to really have um uh some kind of spooks who sat by the door and I look at a lot of the people who are kind of in media right now and i'm surprised at how many people now can't really do journalism in, in, in black mm. in black media, they just do think pieces, you know, and yep. and somebody I know was talking to me and telling me how he notices now that they're not really grooming real black investigative reporters. They used to have those back in the day, like Gil Noble and all these people. They used to have like real invest, black investigative reporters. A lot of them used to be groomed on the uh, the black newspapers. They used to have mm -hmm. uh, black newspapers. Crusader, Defender, yeah, Amsterdam yeah. News, all those things. Uh, uh, that had like real um, news desk. It wasn't like okie doke, rinky dink news. You know, uh, they actually did real, real journalism. And now you just have think piece writers and pop culture writers who write for places like uh, Ebony dot com or the Grio or, or the Root or who are at Buzzfeed and stuff like that. It's like, okay, you guys are in the big white newspapers. You're in the the big major media conglomerates, and what can you really help us with, you know, behind, over there? And and you guys haven't been learning any real skills, really. Well, it's, I think it's a parallel to a point that you've made several times, T, about rappers, like, you know, particularly the, um, I'm forgetting the, the, the odd future rapper's name you've mentioned a number of times over the years. Oh, it's Tyler, the Creator. Tyler, the Creator, this idea that, oh, rapping's just my side hustle. I'm really a filmmaker. You know, I think a, a lot of that, is the same mentality for the folks who are in these newsrooms. It's like journalism is a stepping stone to write a script or to you know, start a podcast or become some sort of Thank you. other content creator or, or multiple create content in multiple different veins and more sort of a, a get the bag type culture versus like this is my craft. I'm going to you know put in the time and effort to become good at this and use it as a means to you know. Either in tell the, the journalist, truth, get people yeah, to do truth, something. information, etc. It's like there's no value in that sort of in, in honing that sort of expertise in today's world in the in the sort of areas that they're operating in. There's more value in creating a brand, you know, and you know, doing things like think pieces that just you know essentially reinforce things that the echo chamber already believes. Those are the sorts of ways in which they're actually honing their craft in that sort of to become that as opposed to become a, a something like an investigative journalist. How much do you guys think that things like consolidation, and I do believe you guys are have to remind me, um, I think the Federal Communications Act of 1996, yeah. right on that, yep, eventually, it. you know, um, how much, uh, how much of an impact? Big impact, have, man. Right? Big impact. Yeah. Like, you just don't have black media like you used to. Like, I, I grew up in an area that had 
an HBCU that had its own radio station and then three other radio stations that were black owned. Like, you know, you had the hip hop yeah, station. Has, Howard has a radio station. Yeah, Howard and. Like, Howard does, but I mean, I, I was. I grew up in another area that had one. But then you also had, like, several others. But then it basically became consolidated into, like, you know, you have three per state and, then, you know, three companies per state own it. And now it's, like, three per region. And then it just expanded out and those just all got eaten up. And now you just have, like, one person in a studio in, like, Chicago pushing a button. And that's the, the whole country listens to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Same news, same headlines. I just don't know what you do. And, I, like, there's the nobody remaining, going down to City Hall. And the remaining black media is gutted. You know, so like the few black newspapers that exist now, they're not, they're, even the ones that used to be good, they're not, they're like a shadow of their former selves. And, or shut down. Yeah, or shut down. Yeah. And the, and I feel like the white media, media grooms a different kind of black person. You know? Right. And, and well, first they select a different kind of black person, then they groom them. So it's like, our black political pundits, we're not getting any hard-hitting, interesting, like, I think in a way it's kind of created this alternate space and this kind of new black media where you're finding a lot of great content online and in podcasts and stuff. But even there, right now I think YouTube is actually a better space than podcasts. Because right now they've corporatized podcasting so badly that most of the top black podcasts are like horrible BuzzFeed, NPR, Slate stuff done by the same kind of blue checks because uh, they have a platform that they'll get pushed really hard and they can be like incompetent or not that interesting but they're on NPR slate so just from that platform they're guaranteed to get millions of listeners for their mid-range tepid views whereas I feel like YouTube is the, probably the last bastion where they haven't really corporatized it yet you, you know you know, like, I mean it's corporatized but what I mean is people people seek out what they seek out on YouTube. Like, I feel like yeah. BuzzFeed or a New York Times or a Slate can't just open a thing on YouTube and just blast everything um, away. It's like, you look at... They hand you a prepackaged food. They hand you, like, a Swanson dinner. You know? Yeah. It's already, it's pre-made, mm-hmm. and, they, and that's all they have. You know? I think the, the, problem, that... for me, the problem for me with YouTube is that the signal to noise ratio is so high that yes there's some amazing content on there uh but it's to wade through so much it's just very difficult i mean i end up connecting with things that's true by like cross-referencing other things that i like mm-hmm. but that only takes you so far and it's i understand it's free people are working for free they're not you know they're doing it on a shoestring if even that so i i i have sort of for lack of better term, commercial expectations for something that's DIY, but DIY on an unprecedented scale. Yeah, and but, it, it just but it makes it tough to identify that sort of uh, you know clutch of 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 broadcasters of, of YouTubers that actually work. And but I it's still up, better why? than than podcasting to me because I'll tell you why. At least YouTube is an algorithm. I can't really stumble on anything with podcasts. Like for example. I did yeah. the, the list of the top 20 podcasts, and it's just four of them about The Office. Um, Slate, Political Gab Fest. And yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, NPR Coast. Joe Rogan. Yeah, I don't have any, unless someone tells me by word of mouth, but I've stumbled on some really interesting things on YouTube, even with the bad signal to noise ratio, which I admit is not ideal. But you can stumble on things. Like, like that guy, Green Gorilla, I found recently. 
was just a total accident of the um, of the algorithm. And he's been pretty yeah. good. I don't know if any of you have seen his stuff yet, but so far he seems interesting. And I feel my, like podcasting is so hard to do there. My my problem with it though is that I I too stumble across things, but I'll give you a prime example. And maybe this happened to to some of you as well. Back at you know in, in the spring, the rising kept showing up in my feed. It was like I I'd never heard of Crystal Ball or, or the, the other person who's on there, but it kept showing up in my feed and the you know the sort of clickbait titles or something. I'm like oh I'll check this out, and so I did. And it was it reinforced some of the things that I'm already interested in, but it took me a while to listen closer closer to what was going on to realize no their project is very different from the things that I'm interested in and yeah. they're putting these certain sort of concepts in action for purposes that are different from the ones that I necessarily want to see but it, that's not to say I, I shouldn't be lazy and just have a spoon fit to me and get to have something that automatically you know speaks to me but I, I really had to be very sort of discerning about that as opposed to just trusting the algorithm to and the sort of titles and the general broad strokes of what they're doing to bring you something that that actually was meaningful. Yeah, I'll so, tell you that The Hill was, The Hill put out a casting call for that show uh, two years ago. And, you know, I mean, DC has like a lot of that media type of stuff that's, that does politics as entertainment. And so that show was like ready to go. Like th- those studios are not on accident, that the content is not on accident. Like they kind of knew what they were getting into. So that show was kind of ready for an audience. And so it caught on real quick. And they had a marketing push behind it that just put it in everyone's wheelhouse real quick. So don't feel, like, you know, tricked. It was, it was ready to be in your eyes. So think about how bad it was for the, for the characters in the film. Let's say that we're all members of, uh, well, not, not even say they weren't members of the Cobras. Let's say that we live in that particular area. You know, on the radio, it's just probably paying, playing, like, a bunch of Motown stuff. And uh, to what <laughs> Yakub brought up, Yakub, I think you may have asked this question earlier. You talked about the use of the radio um, in the Cobra's dispatches uh, to the community. Yeah, it got him caught in the end. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. Um, I'm reading this book right now. It's by Bridget Davis, and it's called, uh, let me pick it up here real quick. Um, it's called The World According to Fannie Mae. And it talks about the underground radio stations in Detroit when people were running numbers. And um, so, you know, we talk about this media consolidation and stuff like that. And we're talking about alternative forms of media. Did you guys get the sense that, I mean, maybe, Yakub, you can expound upon this, that, um, you know, taking over the radio station was that response to that media consolidation or that, you know, whatever was going on at the time. You're talking about at the time of Spook who sat by the door? Mm-hmm, yep. I, I, I will say this, which I think is counterintuitive, but as somebody who was around around the eight, in the 80s and stuff, there was a lot less media, but I swear it was easier to find good stuff, including good underground stuff. Uh, because, and, and this is why I think ISON Info was when he was talking about this, the signal-to-noise ratio. You had... You had way less stuff, but the signal-to-noise ratio was so much better that even though you had a fraction of the content out there, it was a lot easier to 
find what was good. Whereas now, I bet there's probably a lot more good stuff out there, but there's also way, way, way more crap. And lots yeah. of videos and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and T, to that point, I think one other factor here that I never thought that I would ever be saying this is that there was some value to having gatekeepers who actually you know, were, wouldn't just let anything on. It's like it had yeah. to, things had to have some level of competence, some level mm -hmm. of innovation, something that was, something about it that was, that warranted it being presented to the public. Now, the gatekeeper thing is obviously a, a double-edged sword, but I think that the lack of gatekeepers across the board, you know, in today's world is part of the reason why people just get over on the, the whack of shit. There was a book, yeah. There was a book called Cult of the Amateur by this guy Andrew Keen, and it came out in 2004. And I was so into the whole democratization of voices, no more gatekeepers. Mm. At the time, at the time, <laughs> I, at the time I started, at the time I was blogging. When I saw that thing, I never really read the book. I just threw it. Like somebody uh, gave it to me. I just threw it in the garbage. I'm like, what is elitist garbage? Just last week, I downloaded the book. Like uh, 16 years later. Uh, I'm mm. like, I'm gonna. Th this guy was actually right in his premise. And I'm gonna look up the book, and I and I found the book, and I was like, um, what this guy predicted was actually right. But but just to add to your point about that, you never thought you'd say it. I actually f found the book that was saying what you said, and I actually tossed in the garbage uh, 16 years ago, just because I was so against just the idea of thinking that there might be a good use of gatekeepers. Yeah, I mean, in one of the ways in which we see it, I mean, I I was watching. Um, which I do watch every once in a while on YouTube, Vlad TV. He had um, kids from Kid and Play on there. But the interesting thing is that when you hear interviews with people, hip hop artists from that time period, one of the things that one of the things that you do get is that people just didn't get put on. You know, there had to be something. You had to bring something to the table and leave something when you left, as opposed to just riding the zeitgeist. And that meant that there was gatekeepers, whether they be your peers or whether they be, you know, people at record labels, whatever the case may be. Uh, but you know, there's a double thing happening now, right? Of plants. We have we have two things happening, right? It's happening on both levels. First, we have the, we have the democratization of everything, right? That's one problem. And then the second thing is we have even at the top the people who used to be gatekeepers now don't even want to take the, the, the time to actually um, gatekeep. They'd actually want to just create people like like um, people like Lizzo and other people who you never hear about one day and suddenly they're yeah they're just everywhere uh, and it's like these these labels. Somebody's like making a lot of noise. I don't know. Hey, I'm just Jules. Can you mute your mic? I think you're uh, making Sorry, some noise. Do that. Okay, cool. No problem. Uh, push to talk helps. Also, also push to talk. Actually, I can make that setting in the future. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So what happens is um, they're just kind of creating people who are like, okay, this is who we're going to have be our guy. And instead of it being a bottom-up movement where, you know, people like Kid and Play and stuff like that, or if you look at the NWA movie, these people were making noise in the street, and then all the big the big wigs came down to Compton or South Central and were sitting in the show in attendance and 
trying to catch a rising wave, something that was coming up. It's what people like Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons used to do. Now I, I notice a lot of people in the top are just like, who has a good look? Who's on SoundCloud? Who's on YouTube? That has, has potential, has uh, a little bit of influencer cred. And then we'll just amplify that and just push them on people nonstop and just spam um, the media until people think they like this person. And I feel like that's kind of what happened with Takashi 69 Lizzo, where we're just kind of told we like these people. Or, yeah, because Lizzo, I don't know where she came from, but she became inescapable overnight. I think, uh, I think the democratization of, of uh, media, like what we're talking about, I feel like it's almost a bad thing and and that. Uh, astroturfing, you know, I guess like plants, I guess like what you're talking about, it's just, it seems to be so much easier and it's, um, it makes like the, the meritocratic element just a lot harder to suss out um, because, you know, it, it, unless you do a lot of research, you really can't figure out if, uh, you know, someone that came from SoundCloud or someone that came from, you know, whichever else, um, uh, social media site or whatever, if they actually did have organic support or it was like, like you know, astroturf from the beginning. Oh, I, I think what you said just cracked the case. I, I, I think what you said just made it make sense to me. I think what is probably happening is they learned to hack or weaponize democratization. Like, when the democratization thing blew up, I think the people on top kind of looked at it and were, they were like, oh, we can ape or mimic mimic this. Like, create somebody with a SoundCloud thing, you know, and just... Um, right, and it makes... It makes their their merits or or their 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 you know their music or whatever it makes it even more bulletproof from from scrutiny. If you can say, oh well, look, they had you know they had this this support or or whatever. People were tweeting. People were tweeting about them right, nonstop, right. but they don't mention that it was a fake democratization because the original first million tweets were just all their bots, just just spamming Twitter, uh, talking about them. Because I think they do that now. I think they have a bunch of fake bots and accounts and, and a social media department that's there to just create a fake grassroots support optic. I think we can, we can like talk about you know whether or not a true you know capital T true democratization of you know music for example is a good thing but it, it just feels like it does it's does not exist right now in any capacity I mean like if you look at anybody who's popular right now you could draw a line from you know, you know them to their their parents having money or or whatever. You know, there's always there's always something. So I don't know if we're really at, you know, we're at the the ostensible what is it, democratization of music, but I, I don't really think it it's actually there yet, unfortunately. I think uh, what's, I think what's happening this is the last thing I'm going to say for a while. Uh, I I think what's happening right is that this democratization waves that keep happening, um, every time they start and have a lot of promise media kind of picks up on how to ape or at least weaponize the mechanics of the democratization and so so when blogs happen i remember blogs blogs used to be just regular cranks or whatever or regular people who were really charismatic and really fun to follow and then suddenly they became very corporate now a blog is just basically um a slightly less formal uh wing of the main publication like like buzzfeed has a blog new york times has a blog huffington post is a blog like a blog the old version of a blog is gone podcasts i think are becoming the same way but what i think ends up happening is that only the bad aspect of democratization gets kept behind which is the amateur the amateurishness of the final product 
and that and there's just too much shit to listen to. Like it's that just, too. You can't yeah. can't get through everything in one lifetime. Yeah, yeah I feel like a big part is going to be uh, staying power, because um, that that's kind of how it is with music. Like, if decades later someone's still talking about this or that artist, there's a pretty good bet that they're uh, you know they made good music. I'm, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that gonna be a little controversial here but this is this is my take on both the impact that this sort of democratization has had on music but also on film and other media is that I think it could also be the case that the both the utility and the sort of type of enjoyment that typically and historically we've gotten out of these mediums that period is over we're in a different period of interaction with those sort of forms that have little to do with the sort of expectations of you know of popular culture in the past and more has has more to do with the sort of accessorization of popular culture and i, I sort of have taken this approach and it's it's made me feel more disconnected but not in a, a sad way in a way of just being realistic that that period that way of looking at these sort of mediums is over and we're in a different period and will likely be in a different period moving forward it's just you know the the sort of the way things have have changed so much well, I, I think th- i think the art now is basically uh the art of being famous of being a brand more than like like stevie wonder was a musician uh tyler the creator is a brand so, so i think it's very different because i'll give you an example like i turned on um i keep getting this thing on my Twitter algorithm. I kept pushing the Selena Gomez show on me. It's a cooking show, and I, and, I, and, and, I was, and it kept pushing this thing on me. And I was thinking, like, what is her actual job? Like, what is her actual calling? Like, you know, Barbara Streisand was a singer first and foremost. Then she did some acting, but she was always mainly a singer. She was a singer who acted. I have no idea what Selena Gomez is. Is she an actress who sings? Is she a singer who acts? She has a cooking show. She does uh, fashion modeling. One day she might she do running. Yeah, yeah, she just does things, and I think that's what it is now. Like I think Megan The Stallion, uh, her it's, art it's is, being, like is being is, is being Megan the Stallion. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like influencer stuff. It's like you're you're famous for being you, and that's what it is. And Megan The Stallion's <laughs> lasting impact isn't going to be any particular song. She's not going to have her juicy. She's not going to have her kicking the door. She's not going to have her dear mama. To this day, she's had how many albums? And I think I think Wet Ass Pussy is the closest thing she's gonna have to an iconic song, and that's really I think more an iconic video. I think the video is really more than the song. Um, right, and the video itself is a viral stunt more than anything else. Yeah, I think all these influencers are just trying to recreate the Truman Show, and yeah. uh, we're, we're uh, like whoever can do it best, they get the most eyes, and uh, for that day or week, they can, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because we don't get to keep it forever. It's that 15 minutes of uh, fame shit. But my my earlier point about walking away from, you know, media is that really I'm not sure if that's necessarily a bad thing, if that's what it's turned into. Maybe that's the natural life cycle of popular culture. Yeah, yeah, I agree. and And to expect more from it, I think, is a sort of... It's trying to essentially make this a, a, a classical argument for contemporary changes and it, it just it doesn't fit and 
I, the way I look at it is that maybe I need to get into something else. Maybe I need to get into more reading books or something, something different. What this era calls for, for the sorts of things that drove my passions in the past, yeah. may call, call for me to do something different. Yeah, and real quick. Okay, so you're but, saying that it's, it's redundant. Um, I, I might be wrong. Let, let me tell. Let me see if I can see what you're saying. I sound info because I think what I was saying kind of ties into it. As in, the beast has changed too much. The incentives have changed too much. I like like. There's no way to kind of turn it back. Like that moment is kind of gone. As far as looking for things that stand the test of time. Like like, it's not the incentives are gone. The mechanisms are gone. Everything is gone. That we might have to just look for different things and just accept that certain things are gone it's like like for example i've kind of given up on expecting a new rap album to really wow me like i was pleasantly surprised by um i think it was a west side gun album there was a recent griselda album that i was kind of surprised like this is the first time conway. in a long time that i've listened to conway. A, conway yeah i listened to that one conway the machine but you see how i even forgot that even though it was good so much noise popped in my head since I heard that album. <laughs> Back in the days, an album that good, I would have had it on repeat for like a solid week and known all the words. That was a actual rare, real product that had uh, quality on par with some of my favorite timeless albums, like real production, not just something that was done on a Fruity Loops in five minutes. You know, it was like, it sounded really good, the things were, were thought out. And even that, I couldn't keep it in my brain because there was five five million tweets between now and then. There was um, a bunch of viral stupidness with like uh, Kamala Harris naming Tupac her favorite rapper. Um, she's done that rapper. twice. Yeah, she's done that twice. Yep. It, both times it's been hilarious. Tory Lanez and <laughs> Megan Thee Stallion um, controversy about shooting her in the foot. You know, you know. So, I mean, e even to the extent that that old world still exists. Uh, the environment doesn't even allow you to even retain it in, in your head. Um, I saw an info. Am I butchering your point or adding to it? Or No, that's, that's right. And I think, again, more broadly, I think perhaps where we're at now and what's happening really is part of the overall life cycle of popular culture. I mean, pop, popular culture in the sort of way that we think of it is, what, 150, maybe 200 years old if we want to you know, be generous about it. And, and maybe where we're at now, what's happening now, aided by technology, is where we're supposed to be. And our values for people who look for certain things in art, you know, music, film, etc., our values really align more with something else. What that something else is, I don't know. Here, here's my... Here's my I've, I've been thinking about, um, like, uh, I, I don't want to change the subject if someone else has something more to say. But I, I just had a thought about uh, networking and uh, how I found uh, like different creators because um, like for instance I went looking for like some black leftists and uh, I, I've posted a few videos in the uh, Discord or whatever and people seem to have taken to these um, I guess personalities and content creators or whatever on YouTube and I, I just went looking for one and then. Uh, all these other ones popped up because uh, they were on a stream together and then so-and-so mentioned uh, this person and then someone was talking about, oh, I was listening to so-and-so's thing and you just sort of try them out and some of them, you know, are uh, sort of stick. 
kind of like going through the footnotes of um, of of a book or something like that. My scary well, my scary thing about what I sound info is proposing, right, is that I think even though that's the end of the life cycle of pop or those of music or whatever, what it's being replaced with is equally kind of fleeting. I think in a way because I know the things that I like, right, that I find pretty valuable. For example, um, and I think about this with, with the Champagne Sharks show too. Like, like for example, I like a lot of like Eva Carnell stuff, right? But I'm like, okay, if I wanted to boil it down to somebody, she's now got like how many videos? How do I do that? This is a glut of information. Whereas if she just had a book, her manifesto, you know, like for example, with Karl Marx, he, if he had a YouTube at the time, uh, he'd have like a whole bunch of videos. But something about having just one or two solid books like Communist Manifesto and Capital. There's just something about a seminal type of text, which I think is similar to like seminal albums or, you know, works of art that stand the test of time. And one thing that kind of worries me is I agree with Ison Info that that pop culture and music and stuff might have gone past its longevity phase and maybe this is just where it's at, it's dying out, but I think even the good things I like now that are replacing it in my life um, are kind of made to be ephemeral. You, you know, like for example, with our YouTube channel, I went through a phase where I was doing it every single day, right? Uh, to kind of build up a buzz for it. And we got like a thousand subscribers like really fast. And I said, okay, we got momentum now. Now I'd like to pull back and do it less. And as soon as you started doing it less, it kept growing but at a crawl. And I started noticing all the YouTube channels that really grow fast and get really big and get like five, six figure follower counts, they're posting all the time. Even if it's just five, 10 minute clips here and there, like almost every day you do something. And I'm like, do but, I really want to have a content glut? Like, uh, I think, well, T, I was, yeah, T, what I was gonna uh, recommend is that, I mean, I know you're very, uh, <laughs> You know, of, of the moment when you're actually doing the doing the uh, stream, but what would be great, and I see other other people do this, is that they get clips and uh, from a particular stream of you know whatever two hour three hour stream, and then they'll, they'll have that core, and then they'll also put out ten minute clips of it. I think that would help in keeping the momentum going for people who need that sort of. You know, letting people, have, letting oh, people have, have an end to the show without having to necessarily watch a three hour stream kind of understand what it's about or, or what makes it fun or enjoyable to watch i mean right. I yeah mean, I, and the clips sort of act as an advertisement for the stream like if the stream's really good and you put a really good clip out there then people will want to uh watch the stream and also i would say that uh you know yvette does you know two videos a week uh sometimes uh more but you know she sort of, sort of paces herself and she does a lot of i guess i don't know like uh, so, sort of like um, it, it kind of feels like gossip sometimes because she's just talking about like yeah. Twitter beefs and stuff like that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but that's, that's what I mean. It's very ephemeral. It's very of the moment. A lot of that stuff won't age. Yeah. Well, yeah. but 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 I, but, I see but, your point about uh, her like having a book, like maybe you know, like a, a capital, like Eidos Volume One. Yeah, yeah, and it just has like the core tenets, you know, so you don't have to go through all those videos. But even the advice you guys are giving me, right, it's still the same amount of content. You just give me a way of creating the content without actually having to 
do as much work but at the end of the day when it's said and done whether it's broken down clips of a longer stream or me doing a bunch of new five minute clips at the end of the day there's just going to be a lot more clips that's kind of mm. what I'm, that's kind of what i'm saying like everything is geared toward making a lot of noise you know yeah. what I mean? someone who's smarter than me can correct me but i mean it wasn't the communist manifesto kind of like a uh clip of you know capital in, in a way yeah it was like a pamphlet and, that's a good point yeah right <laughs> and i think yeah. um sorry I, I just wanted to get this in really quick um i think the reason people can't um put out like a, a, a tome or a book you know, it's like everyone has to kind of feed the content machine, right? Like everyone's got to eat, and I think, like, yep. like you were saying, the only way to do that is just is just to 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 bum to um, what's the, what's the word? Like oversaturate, I suppose. And you know, no one really, you know, you, you can't take three or four or five years to, or I guess maybe even more that to make something like capital to to uh, assemble all your thoughts and everything to make a make a tell them because you'll go hungry or you'll you know people will just. Not give a shit. At that yeah, point. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or be, right. for, or, or be forgotten. You're gone for like five months. You come back. Like, like, who, like, who are you? The whole, the whole, the whole, the whole scene. The whole scene has changed. And I think, in a way, it kind of ties into the movie too. About um, can can that type of like there's a lot of things that require patience and attention span. That and those are two things that are gone today. So it's like, uh, it, I hate that Lee Daniels is the one doing it because somebody who is really intelligent and thoughtful, I would love for them to kind of show how does a um, how does a spook who sat by the door happen in this type of technology and content saturated, low attention span, low patience um, in, in environment, you know? Does, the, does uh, Dan Freeman embrace technology? Um, do a bunch of his people that he signs up uh, blow it blow it all all up in the first week because they posted it on YouTube, you know, or on Facebook Live? Like uh, we're at the gun range, look what we're doing, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, was gonna, I, was, I was gonna say I, I think that's the the wrong question. Perhaps asking how do you do that in today's environment? I think the question to my mind would be what would it look like if you did it? You know, and the sort of the way in which we all probably imagine that it would turn out in the sort of like i think that the failures of the moment would be interesting to see if not depressing when it comes I, to I the, had, the content, uh, um, go on 